Warning, this week's podcast is family-friendly. If you're not a family, hopefully you are friendly. You are listening to the Literary Comedy Podcast. Stories of comedy, tragedy, and time. Ing. Hello. Welcome to Chapter 2 of A Dragon for George. If you haven't listened to Chapter 1, do so. Or listen to this spoiler-filled synopsis. In Chapter 1, George met a... You can't see my air quotes, but trust me, I'm air quoting pretty hard here. Damsel. Also, George met two horsemen dressed up as knights who may or may not be part of a live-action role-playing game. And George found a fantastical-looking egg that may or may not have a connection to his dead brother, Max. And now, Chapter 2. This wasn't any different than when George's mom bought lottery tickets for everyone's birthday. The chances of winning were incredibly small. But you'd imagine what you'd do with all that money all the same. The places you might go, the cool stuff you might buy. You'd tell yourself you'd probably lose. Most people lost. But you'd still check the numbers. It would be silly not to check the numbers. That's all George was doing as he headed for the farmhouse. He'd take the egg to Max's room. Whatever it did, it would do there. If it really had any connection to Max other than in George's mind, that is. Which, of course, it almost certainly didn't. But George needed to check whether the egg was a winner or a loser. He hid it under his jacket. Not because it was some big secret or anything, but he didn't want to explain what he was doing to anyone either. He hated explaining. Who likes explaining? George's belly helped absorb shocks, and the jacket had a particularly strong elastic waist, so it was a good place to store the egg while traveling. All George needed to do to keep the egg from slipping out, strong as the elastic was, it was not quite as strong as the gravity of the whole planet pulling down on the egg, so all he had to do was fold his arms in front of his belly to cradle it. Lots of people folded their arms in front of their belly. No one would suspect a thing, George thought as he passed the workshop. What are you hiding under your jacket? asked Jack, the stable hand, working on a bitless bridle. Nothing, said George, turning away from Jack. Come back here with that nothing, said Jack, routing a screwdriver out of a clanking metal toolbox. George kept walking. If you try to hide something in my stables... They're not your stables, said George, stopping. My parents own the stables, but I run them said Jack, picking out a very tiny screwdriver. Don't make me chase you down. I will catch you. And don't try to hide anything. I will find it. But if you show me, well, then I probably won't even care. Jack wasn't bluffing. He was a very fast runner and a very good finder. I didn't want to bother anyone with it, said George, unzipping his jacket to reveal the egg. It's just a toy. Another soap egg, said Jack, laughing to himself. Some people never learn. Jack twisted the screwdriver into the noseband of the bridle, which zapped him as punishment. Are you okay? Yeah, stop asking, said Jack, opening and closing both his hands to make sure he still could. George walked into the workshop to get a closer look. Not of Jack's injury, of course. George didn't particularly care for Jack, but bridles weren't supposed to zap people. 
Bridles weren't supposed to be electric in any way, nor should you be able to repair them with screwdrivers, and they definitely shouldn't have a round light in the center of the noseband. What's that for? It's for next Christmas, said Jack, removing a small battery from the side of the noseband. Oh, I get it, said George. It'll have antlers, too, I guess, and that light'll be red and go over the nose. Not on your life, said Jack, more loudly than was necessary. He grabbed George and pulled him in close. The Rudolph people are very litigious, Jack whispered. This is for a completely unrelated sleigh puller named Gretel the Green-Snouted Steed. Okay, said George. Better than okay, said Jack. You should be thanking me for my brilliance. I need to do something to increase the earning potential of this place. I know, said George. Your parents just mope around all the time, Jack said. It's bad for business. And if they lose this business, well, that's bad news for me. You ought to talk some sense into them. They don't listen to me, George said. Then what good are you? Jack unscrewed the bulb, examining it carefully. He eyed the wiring in the socket, shook his head at himself, and snipped off a frayed end. He screwed the bulb back in, replaced the battery, and pressed the on button, disguised as part of the reins. Sparks flew from the noseband. You've got five months till Christmas, George said helpfully. Don't you have work to do? Jack snapped. We've got customers due in half an hour, and you haven't even fed the horses yet. George nodded, rushing to the hayloft. He put the egg in a far corner, but didn't get three feet before a sickness hit the pit of his stomach. He couldn't just leave the egg unattended. Yes, I can, George said to himself. He lifted a bale of hay into a wheelbarrow and, not looking back to make sure the egg was okay, as looking back would be incredibly silly, rushed the hay to the stables, slowing down as he arrived. Horses pick up on feelings. So George always tried to be calm and happy around them. This would be very easy because he wasn't worried about the thing in the stables that he didn't even need to ignore because he was ignoring it so well. He focused on the tasks at hand. Each horse enjoyed their food a little different. Galahad enjoyed a bit of carrot and apple on top of three flakes of hay. He was by far the biggest horse. Guinevere, Egrain, and Bob preferred their carrots whole and only after eating exactly two flakes each. Percival ate the freshest grass possible and would graze at any opportunity, but you still had to give him one flake of hay in the morning or he'd be galloping straight for the fields, half wild, bucking off a paying customer. George rubbed his long snout as the horse chewed happily. The feeding done, George brushed the horses, explaining to them in his most soothing voice, that the egg in the hayloft was most likely just a toy and that they shouldn't be worried about it. I'm definitely not worried, George said as he moved on to sweeping out the stables. Okay, maybe he was a little bit worried, but that was only because the egg was alone and unprotected. What if someone took it? Or worse yet, broke it? If he could just go check on it, he'd calm down. He needed to calm down or he'd affect the horses. It was entirely for their sake. But as George headed for the door, Jack led in three so-called customers. You'll have to wait a short bit before riding this morning, Jack said. My assistant was late feeding the horses and we don't want them to throw up. I'd fire him if I were you, said Hank, huge even for a 14-year-old. 
His freckled nose looked like it had smelled something awful, which might have offended George on behalf of the horses, but Hank always looked like he'd smelled something awful. Two awful-smelling galoots, nicknamed Thud and Hork, flanked him. Did you really get another soap egg? said Thud, grabbing George by the shoulder with his big, meaty hand. What an idiot, said Hork, spitting. Pyh! He's a stupid kid, Hank said. Still playing make-believe. George would not let them rile him up, not in front of the horses. I have to go, George said, trying to step around Thud, who tightened his grip. Stay, said Hank, grabbing George's other shoulder. We want you to show us the merchandise. Jack can show you the horses, said George. I really do have to go. To check on your egg, said Hork, spitting. Tch. Didn't Max give you one of those? Max was a good guy, said Jack. You told everybody they had to be nice to you because you had a dinosaur on your side, said Hank, laughing. Hork joined in, then Thud, and finally Jack, who couldn't help himself. Laughter can be joyous if, let's say, you hear a hilarious joke. That sort of laughter lifts you up, which is why we call it uproarious. Okay, maybe that's not exactly why, but it could be. The laughter George endured at the moment was an attack, like if ten lions, saliva dripping from their teeth, all roared at you at once. George wondered if someone had invented the word downroarious to describe this sort of laughter. They hadn't, but now he had. I was a kid then said George, trying not to wince as Thud squeezed his shoulder. Okay, said Hank. Now you're all grown up, so you'll be happy to give us the egg. I don't have it, George said, unzipping his jacket to show them the lack of egg. So let me go. Fetch it and bring it to us, said Hank. No. The customer is always right, Jack reminded George. They're not customers yet said George. Egrain snorted unhappily. Galahad neighed unpleasantly. George's mood was rubbing off on them. You give us the egg, said Hank, slapping George's other shoulder. And we'll rent some horses. We'll even leave a tip. You come here every day and say that you are thinking about renting just so you can torment me, George said. I'm sick of you guys. Ixne ithe uthtre, said Jack. Potential customers can still give bad reviews. I don't care, said George. At least we think about renting horses, said Hank, putting his face so close that George could smell the cheese curls on his breath. Who else would even think about renting your horses with your parents moping around this place all the time? That's what I said, said Jack. They're creepy and depressing, said Hank. But if you hand over the egg, we'll... Tell our friends what a good time this place is. We're very popular, said Hork. You can't buy publicity like that, said Thud. You're lying about all of it, said George. I don't even like dinosaurs anymore, but you can't have the egg all the same because you're bullies, and I am not going to let the bullies win. You sound just like Max, said Thud. You should be careful about that, said Hork. Things didn't turn out well for him said Hank. Hank had been at the bus stop when that bully Johnny had picked on George. He'd seen Max take on Johnny 
George hated to think of what happened next. Are you going to cry? said Hank, bringing George's attention back to the here and now. Egraine shuffled around in her cell. Galahad neighed. George didn't want to upset them. He tried to push down his feelings, but instead they exploded in a rush of tears. The neighs sounded like screaming as George pulled free of the bullies. Laughter drowned out the neighs as George rushed to the hayloft, unable to escape the visions of Max in that fight with Johnny. Visions of Max falling. Visions of Max not getting back up. George picked up the egg. Simply touching it filled his heart with love, but love only made his ache deeper. He had to get the egg to Max's room. He'd found the egg for a reason. The wind had blown for a reason. He ran into the farmhouse, past the kitchen and up the stairs, opening the door to his brother's bedroom. The room was exactly how Max had left it. The same basketball and movie posters lined the walls. The same books sat on the shelf. A thick novel called The Once and Future King rested on the side table in the exact spot Max had placed it six months before. George put the egg on Max's bed, waiting for some sort of sign. But no wind blew. The egg didn't hatch. George knew better. Of course he knew better. He wasn't stupid. George sat down, his back to the bed, placing the egg beside him. He rested his arms on his knees and his head in his arms. Hot tears overwhelmed his eyes. Two sets of footsteps creaked up the stairs. George considered dashing to his own room, but his parents would definitely see. So he stood up, wiping the tears away, tucking in his shirt, trying to make himself look as tidy as possible. He heard the footsteps turn up the hall. He glanced down at the egg, nudging it under the bed and out of sight. Nothing in this room was supposed to change. Nothing had changed. Not in six months. Hi, George said as his parents arrived in the doorway. His mom opened her mouth as if to speak, but remained silent. So George answered the question he figured she might have asked. I was looking for a book. Max liked to lend me his books. The last sentence was true. The one before that was definitely a lie. George didn't like to lie. But the truth would have hurt his parents. The truth would have made George feel even stupider than he already did. You are not supposed to be in here, his mother stammered. I know, but— Out, his father said through a bushy beard. The man hadn't shaved in months. This is not your room. But, said George, out, out, his father yelled, pointing the way. Fine, said George, walking past his parents and into his own room. He turned back as they shut Max's door. They refused to look at George as they walked past him and down the stairs. George turned from them to the closed door. His heart beat fear and loneliness through his arteries. The bullies had teased him. His parents were furious with him, all because of that stupid egg that he knew was a stupid toy. If the egg was a sign from Max, 
It was a sign that George was not any kind of knight, not even the imaginary kind. Ever since he got home, George had snuck around, hiding from people, lying to them. Sure, he'd helped that damsel, but even then he'd had to sneak. Sure, he'd stood up to the bullies, but that ended in tears and cowardice. That night, George took solace by reading three comic books and two chapters of The Return of the King. Pippin knew what it was to be frightened and small, and all hobbits knew how to sneak. And yet Pippin could still be brave when it counted. All brave people and hobbits felt fear sometimes. That's what bravery was, overcoming fear for what is right. So if you were never frightened, you could never be brave. George could worry about the kind of knighthood where you didn't lie and sneak and run away sometimes when he was the sort of knight who was big and strong. George fell asleep, thinking about the pros and cons of chainmail. He woke with a start, fearing for the egg, needing it to be safe. He told himself it was where he left it. He told himself it didn't matter anyway. The egg was just a toy. He'd proven that it was just a toy. It was barely dawn. He should go back to sleep. Yet George found himself sliding slowly out of his bed, taking his mobile phone from his side table and turning on the flashlight app. His parents had discontinued his plan. Mostly he just used the phone for the flashlight and occasionally the camera. He crept toward his doorway, carefully turning the handle, pushing his way into the hall. Every step was conspicuous, every quiet tiptoe loud as thunder. George slowly inched through the door to Max's room, aiming the phone's light under the bed. The egg was gone. George cast his eyes around the room, thinking the egg might have rolled somewhere. It should have been easy to see. It was big and odd-looking. But he didn't see it. It wasn't there. George headed outside into the faint pre-dawn light, not to search for the egg, he told himself. He would put out some hay for the horses and then hike to his room in the forest to clear his head of all egg-related nonsense. Hi, Jack, George said, seeing him at the sink beside the workshop. Your parents found this in Max's room, Jack said, rubbing his hands vigorously over the egg. Man, this egg isn't even good as soap. I've got the tap on hot, and it won't even suds up. Jack shook his head as he left, disgusted at the lack of craftsmanship displayed by whoever made this soap. George turned the tap off, reaching into the sink, pulling out the egg, now hot to the touch. George laid it gently on the ground, blowing on it till it cooled. He cradled it like a child, pulling it close to his chest. You're being ridiculous! he said to himself, but he didn't stop cradling the thing. Instead, he said, There, there. It'll be okay. George took a breath. <sighs> You're talking to an egg. A fake egg at that. But he carried it with him to the hayloft and then to the stables. He left it in the small, empty stall on the end, making a nest for it out of straw, shaking his head at himself, but completing his task all the same. As he put hay out for the horses, he heard a crack. He shook his head. It wasn't the egg. It was the wooden beams, probably. 
George returned to the stall at the end only to prove that his imagination was running wild. But a jagged fault line ran around the eggshell three quarters up near the larger end. Soap could crack like that when it dried. That was probably it. George ran his index finger along the fault line. He snapped his hand away as the egg cracked again. The fault line now forked in three directions. Now six. Now the forks themselves forked. The egg cracked again and again and again, one last time as if it wanted to prove something. Pieces of shell dropped away. It's just a toy, George said to himself preparing to be disappointed. It's cracking through with a plastic beak. It runs on batteries. The egg squeaked and chirped. That's just a recording. A lizard head broke through, its face coated in slime. Its throat quivered as it chirped again. It turned to George, looking him straight in the eye. It squeaked and chirped rapidly as it continued to push the shell away. Okay. So you're not a toy, George said, smiling at the thing. You're a real lizard. An iguana, maybe? Or maybe a lizard from Komodo that people call a dragon even though it can't fly or breathe fire? George wondered if he should tell his parents or take the lizard to the pet store to ask for advice. The lizard wriggled out of its shell, unfurling its tail, rolling onto its legs, which it stretched out along with two leathery wings twice the length of its body. Thank you for listening to Chapter 2 of A Dragon for George. Please like, rate, review, subscribe. Also, please join us next week for Chapter 3, when George realizes that a building filled with straw and made of wood is not the best place for a dragon. Until then, bless you, keep you, and take good care.